Hello, and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Jeffrey Smith, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to part two of chapter 19 in the book. Chapter 19 is about uh, the involuntary symptoms of pathology and grief and depression. And during the last podcast, we talked about depression and its various presentations and causes. And we left off at a section that, that is actually very interesting, which is titled Conditions That Look Like Depression But Are Not. Yes, since depression is, is such an easy diagnosis to make, then people identify themselves as being depressed or their friends or family members uh, say, oh, you must be depressed. And it's not always something that fits the descriptions of depression that we, that we went over before. Uh, in the previous chapter, we talked about those biological symptoms that make people wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to go back to sleep and make them lose their appetite and feel much worse in the morning. That's, those are the biological aspects. And then we talked about some of the helpers, the automatic thoughts that make, make depression worse and the behaviors like isolation that make it worse. And finally, we talked about those dynamics of anger that gets turned against the self because it has no place else to go. So those are all kind of the classic things that we think of in terms of, of depression. But then we get to some other situations that people have, and one of the more common ones is people are stuck in a really unhealthy situation in life. For example, maybe it's, it's a job that's making completely unreasonable demands, and the person feels helpless and hopeless and incapable of fulfilling the demands of the job, and then they're afraid of getting fired, and, and they have a horrible boss, and it leads to something that in old-fashioned language you could call despair or demoralization. And that feels very, very depressing. But this, the solution to it isn't running to medication and psychotherapy because it really isn't possible to feel good about a situation that's severely unhealthy. And so I think in that case, by and large, the, what a therapist can do is try to help the person focus on real adult solutions, which may be pretty drastic to, to a very troublesome situation. So I was wondering, Dr. Smith, if to discuss what I'm calling circumstantial depression, right? These, uh, this unhealthy lifestyle that makes us so unhappy, if maybe you could bring up a couple of examples. Yes, it's complicated because sometimes people do respond to a situation like that with identification with the aggressor, with turning anger inward on themselves. And so they start to act in a more self-destructive kind of way or, or show 
other signs of, of real depression. And so that is depression. You know, that's an EDP, an entrenched dysfunctional pattern of reaction to a bad situation. So that one I would count as, as real depression. But if it's, if it's a, a bad situation like that, well, the best example I have is, is one that actually embodies all of the things that we're going to talk about today. It's a woman who had a conflict about her, her religion. So let me put that on hold for a little while, and I'll talk about it more extensively as we, um, as we go on. Okay. Um, so you mentioned um, very briefly in this chapter that grief is not depression. Right. And, and that point we made in the last podcast, that, that grief is something natural and that is self-healing. And so sometimes we, we may be able to just be a listener and facilitate the process of self-healing. But basically, grief does take is, is natural and it takes care of itself unless it's a complicated kind of grief where these dynamics of anger turned inwards begin to, to take hold. And so I, I just mentioned grief along, among the things that can look like depression but really isn't. And, and you also mentioned not getting one's way can be confused for depression. Well, that's kind of my favorite. What happens is people with narcissistic pathology are used to having their way always. But every once in a while, they run into a situation that they can't master, especially late in their career as as narcissists. Um, uh, when, because because the narcissistic person, in order if their if their self esteem is challenged, let's say they rise to a position of power, and they manage to gain power, but then it starts not to work so well. What do they do? They do something even more outrageous in order to regain their following and their power. And then when that doesn't work, they have to do something even more outrageous. And pretty soon those things don't work very well. What is a narcissist to do? Well, they're gonna complain that they're feeling depressed. And occasionally they'll go and see a, a therapist uh, complaining that they're feeling depressed. And when you listen to them, the only thing that's gonna relieve that depression is having their way. But sometimes when, when their way just doesn't work, uh, they can feel so, so desperate that suicide is, is, is occasionally the answer. Uh, and I've, I've seen that happen. It would seem to me that um, each successive outrageous behavior or attempt to get their way would actually create a whole lot of wreckage. And it seems to me that that wreckage itself could become cause for circumstantial depression. Well, you can, you can certainly call it that. Um, but in terms of, of helping them, you know, the, the practical solutions may actually be, be about the best thing that one can do. Because you're not, in those circumstances, you're probably not going to be able to address the personality disorder. That's going to be too deeply entrenched uh, at, at that point. So... So it's a little bit like a two-year-old two temper tantrum, um, but it's in an adult, and that's a special situation. But it really helps to be able to recognize that if and when it happens. All right. And then you also mentioned the miscellaneous symptoms of depression, weight loss, insomnia, unhappiness, difficulty concentrating, and other symptoms that people can confuse for depression. And you say that we have to find the blocked anger. Well, so, so if blocked anger is there, then, then we do need to recognize that. And that's, 
something that, that you find as you listen. I'll give an example, but it's not quite about depression. It's really about anxiety, which is the, the next chapter. But a, a man had a panic attack while he was on the highway, and his instinct told him immediately to step on the gas and get home as quickly as possible. So I asked him, well, what were you afraid of? Why did you need, feel that you needed to get home so quickly? And he said, well, I, I, was, I felt like I needed to protect people around me against myself, against my own fear of losing control somehow. And to me, that clicked right away. And I said to myself, that's a person who's sitting on a volcano worth of anger, and he's afraid of losing control of his own anger. And so that's just an example of how one might become aware of, of anger. And so if you listen to feelings of depression or difficulty concentrating or, or unhappiness or whatever, if you start to notice an unreasonable hurtfulness directed towards the self, that should be a tip off that there's anger in there somewhere. So we need to keep our ears open for anger that's not being handled appropriately. Anger is, is one of those emotions that's, that's probably the hardest to deal with, where we, in our culture at least, have the most uh, propensity to find ways to disguise it or, or blunt it or turn it against the self. Yeah, especially in a society that, that says, don't judge, don't be judgy. Right. And, and when we're angry, we're judging that um, some harm has been done to us. And in a way, we're not we don't really have the room oftentimes to express our anger in a way that is supported. That's right. And also, I think uh, there's a principle in there that's pretty important, which is that it's only occasionally that you can in a healthy way, express anger directly towards whoever it is that, that might have made you angry. If it's your boss, you need to think quite carefully before you do that. And we'll bring up later that sometimes in, in situations where there's abuse, it may also be not such a good idea. The only place where it's really appropriate to express it directly is when it's towards somebody that you care about and trust. Mm -hmm. and, and in those cases, then anger really is a, is a good tool for resolving differences. It says, hey, there's a problem here that needs to be worked on. And those two people that can put their heads together and come up with some resolution or at least uh, agree to disagree, and that's a healthy solution. But in many cases, you can't really do that. And trying to do it creates more consequences and more trouble. Right. So, so next best is to share the anger with your therapist. Until you can share it in a productive way with the person who has made you angry. Right. And there's also the, uh, the other situation where the anger is directed at the therapist. That in some way, you know, transference happens and the, uh, the inner child uh, decides that the therapist is the one who deserves all of the blame and the client gets angry at the therapist. And fortunately, that's also someplace where hopefully we're trustworthy and we can, uh, we can help our client uh, sort out what anger we might actually deserve if we've made a mistake or something, and what anger doesn't really belong to us but is transferred from somebody else. Right. That's the fun part of the job. <laughs> <laughs> put, put on your Michelin suit. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so let's, let's discuss a little 
the treatment principles of, of depression and underlying anger, uh, you, you state that there are basically three, um, managing the biological dysregulation, uh, a cognitive behavioral approach, and examining the emotional side of the EDP. Can you tell us a little bit more about these three methods? Yes, I think, let me do that. And then I think I'm going to just share with you a, a, a fairly extensive example um, that's, that's a pretty interesting one. So, so the biological dysregulation, the sleep disturbance, the appetite problems, uh, the early morning feeling terrible, those things that, that make people, at least to, to people who know them well, make them look obviously not themselves. When those things are, are present, and as we've discussed before, they can be present in bipolar conditions, they can be present in, in people who have a family history of depression, uh, they can be pr present in severe depressions of, of any sort, uh, and they can be present in grief. So those biological manifestations um, do happen. They're not terribly common, but they're, they're not uncommon either. And so those things we're going to approach, first of all, probably with medication, because that's severe enough that it's going to really interfere in the person's functioning. And the second one you mentioned about cognitive and behavioral, and that's because we're dealing there with helpers, with helpers from the previous chapters where we talked about those, one kind of helper are automatic thoughts like, oh, this is going to last forever, I'll never get better, my life is ruined, and, and things like that. And those thoughts make the depression worse. So it's, it's really valid to combat the thoughts directly to talk about how they're not rational and, and they're, they're um, unreasonable and they're manifestations of the non-conscious problem solver using its methods to try to deal with this this problem. And then the other one, the other kind of helper are behaviors such as, as self-isolation that also make the, the depression worse. And we deal with those in a more cognitive behavioral kind of mode, or at least it's worth trying that. And that's been shown to be of some help. And and then the last the last one that you mentioned, the third sort of approach to depression is, as we've been talking about, is beginning to try to bring the anger into consciousness in a positive, fruitful way, trying to help the client be aware of their anger and mindful about it and, and share it and feel it. And in those cases, it's when the, when the client is able to actually feel the anger and feel it in relation to whoever it is that is the real target of it that then the natural healing process can begin to take place and and that is the long-term solution to to the anger so this case is a woman had young children and she had a business uh, which was quite successful and a husband who was going for a graduate degree and as things were evolving the business was really exciting to get going and to set up and to grow but it was starting to not be quite as, as interesting as it was. And she found herself spending most of her time taking care of the kids at home, cooking for them and so on. And she was actually getting bored. And she was a very bright woman. And she, she, what she really wanted to do was to go and get a PhD for herself. And she, she would, have, would have been excited about doing that. But she felt that her role as a mother in her religion 
was not to complain and to support her husband getting his graduate degree and take care of the kids and bring in the income for the family. So she was doing all of those things, but increasingly unhappy about it. And so you can see there's, there's some hints that there might be some anger in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the first thing I did, she was profoundly depressed, was biologically depressed. And so, so I went immediately for the, for the antidepressant medications and applied them vigorously. And that began to work. She began to feel a little bit, a little bit better. But she continued to have a lot of thoughts that there was no hope in this situation, that, uh, that she was really stuck and, and that she was just, that it was a, a real life situation, not realizing how much impact the values that she had internalized from her religion that was not a feminist religion at all, how much those values were part of the equation that was locking her into this helpless servitude. So the first thing that happened was there wasn't much place for the cognitive behavioral approach, but what did happen is her mother came out to visit and helped her out with the kids, and that gave her some relief. So that made things look a little bit better. And the husband was also really devoted, and and he would take days off when her depression was at its worst, and, and she was feeling suicidal and things like that. So we kind of muddled through that part of it. And then mom went back home, and there she was with the kids again, and the depression began to get worse, and the medication wasn't working, and things were looking pretty dark. So we started to look more thoroughly into the emotional part of it, and that's when I began to learn a lot more about her attitude towards her religion. She actually wasn't 100% in favor of this religion. She didn't go to the religious services. She actually kind of resented her husband who was more religious than she was. And he would spend all of Sunday at the religious place and she had to then take care of the kids and she kind of resented that. So that gave us the beginning of an opening to be able to talk about the anger. And we had actually a lot of pretty clear, simple discussion about when is anger appropriate, when isn't it? Uh, how deeply did she believe in the religion? And you can see here that her value system was more orthodox than she was. You know, she wasn't such a strong believer in that religion, but her values had been formed earlier in her life. And those values said, oh no, you owe your allegiance to the, the principles of this religion. You're supposed to be a housewife and take care of the kids and bring in the bring in the income for the family, and that's your duty. And so her values were actually more implacable than her beliefs. And so that gave us an opening because she didn't really agree with her own values. And so we could work on the values, and that's one layer of the psychological treatment, was to bring those values into some question and discuss them. And then the next layer was this fear of of what would happen if she actually expressed her anger, if she actually allowed herself to feel it full bore. And so we, little by little, we kind of detoxified that by separating out. The non-conscious problem solver doesn't know the difference between feeling anger and acting on it. And the problem solver knows that acting on anger can cause a lot of trouble and consequences, but it doesn't really know that it's okay to feel anger and that allows healing 
without putting it into action, without doing anything destructive. And so explicit conversations about that. The thing about anger is that it's very mobilizing. And, and it's frightening because once you feel it, you actually want to move out from under it. You want to relieve the pressure of anger. And so that's why in my mind, it would seem so much safer for people to just want to ignore it altogether because resisting that mobilizing influence of anger is extremely challenging. It's difficult. But when you ignore it, what happens? Yeah, it comes out in other ways. It's a game of whack-a-mole always, isn't it? Exactly. And ultimately, the one that everybody approves of is turning it towards yourself. Right, right. So, but in this example, your patient actually was, was oppressed by values that were not really her own. And the work must have been very interesting because I imagine that she discovered what her true values were. Exactly. That's right. And that, as we've talked about in, in previous podcasts about values, the, the first element of being able to work with, with inappropriate values is having a crystal clear intellectual understanding that, that those internalized values are things that I don't agree with and my true values are different. And those are both internalized values, the true ones and the, and the religious ones, and they're not compatible And it's only when they come out on the surface that the incompatibility begins to be visible. So that example, and I guess we'll, we'll, as we go on, we can uh, reflect back on that example because it really contains all of the the things that we want to talk about in this part of this chapter and looking at how does one uh, go about treatment for people who, who show various kinds of real true depression. Okay, so using this example, and returning to the treatment principles, the first of which you state is um, regulating the, the biology. Uh, so you prescribed uh, an antidepressant, but in your, in your treatment of antidepressant medication in this chapter, and also what is commonly known in, in the field, is that antidepressants tend to restrict the range of emotion. Right. How did your patient... Um, fair with that restriction because that is something that worries a lot of my own patients they mm-hmm. they don't want antidepressants well in this case then then this person was was relegated to spending the day in bed uh, doing nothing not taking care of her children and her husband couldn't go to work and so obviously suppressing that emotion by any means possible was way better than than not and so that's a case where as we've talked about before when functioning is compromised uh, then suppressing emotion is a good thing. Uh, so we went ahead and, and did it. And in her case, there had been a previous history of depressions and antidepressants had worked to help her with those. So I wasn't so afraid of kicking off a manic phrase, phase, even though, though that was a possibility. And I, I certainly asked a lot of questions in taking a history to, to find out if there was any indication of episodes of, of mania in the past. So there wasn't, so I could go ahead with the antidepressants and use them. And nowadays, uh, the trend has gone to using not only antidepressants, but but the newer antipsychotic medications can be very, very effective and and work quickly and help people to get some sleep finally, uh, which is also part of helping because going without sleep 
doesn't do much good either. That's, that's a pretty terrible symptom. Uh, so, so I was vigorous about using medication with her. And fortunately, that after 10 days, a couple of weeks, that started to really be effective. Mm-hmm. So how did, you, um, how did you help her from a behavioral approach? Right. So, so in her case, the main help came from, I think, her mother and her husband who, who rose to the occasion. And you could imagine that if that didn't happen, then her tendency to be self-destructive, to isolate, stay in bed, just not function would be very strong. And then you can imagine with somebody who, like most people with depression, has a very strong moral sense and you can see how that would lead to moral self-condemnation. And so that's how the, some of the behavioral helpers uh, that, that come from the non-conscious problem solver actually can make this depression much worse and, and harder to untangle if there's self-condemnation that's based on the evidence that the person produces on their own. You know, it's my fault that I didn't, uh, that I didn't go to work today and therefore I'm a horrible person and, and that makes you feel really, really bad. So that's the behavioral side of, of the helpers, EDPs. And then there's the thought side and you often hear thoughts that come directly from the non-conscious problem solver, which have both the quality of being more black and white and also that are lacking in the dimension of time. So you'll often hear people say, oh, this is never going to get better. This is forever, and I'm never going to feel better. And they're quite convinced of it because the non-conscious problem solver doesn't understand time, just doesn't get it. And so today is forever. And when that comes into conscious thinking, people will say it and believe it, even though it's, it's rather obviously not terribly rational, but the feeling is so powerful and so real that, that you think it, and then that obviously makes the depression much worse. Not only does it make the depression worse, but you can imagine then you as a therapist are saying, well, you know, it's really, these things usually do get better. And maybe the, the patient hears that, don't really believe it. And, and they'll tell you, oh no, that's not right. I know this is gonna last forever. And, and so it, they'll argue with you and your words may be worth saying, but they don't, have, they don't get much traction. Right. And that's, that's not very helpful to them at all. It might also maybe make them feel that their anger is diminished or that their depression is diminished, that their emotional experience is diminished. That's right. And, and that, you know, is the difference between DBT and CBT. Dialectical behavior therapy does some of that intellectual reframing of thoughts, but also leaves room for, for uh, acknowledging and, and, and validating the feeling. And that's really in this kind of situation is a very important part of treatment because if you just have an intellectual cognitive approach to, to that kind of ideation, then it's not, it's not gonna work very well. Right. So moving from the, from the cognitive and behavioral approach to treating depression onto the third one, which is the emotional approach to treating depression, it seems that this is really essentially about providing the, the space to the patient to express, to connect with the anger, and to express it in, safely. Yes. Connect with the anger is a really good wording for that because 
what we know neurophysiologically is that the healing when it when it uses that mechanism of memory reconsolidation requires that those synapses deep down in the brain um, the the anger synapses get activated and so so connecting with the anger means knowing consciously that those deep down emotional circuits have been activated and that's one of the conditions for for healing to happen so that's the ultimate goal is to be able to connect with the anger in a context that's safe and the safety really comes from helping the person know in an experiential way that you can that you can share the anger that you can put the anger into words you can feel it you can fantasize about uh, hurting the person that you're angry with about you know i'll ask a person if you had free reign to do whatever you felt like what would you do to that person and that fantasy is perfectly okay that has no consequences it's only okay. actions and that's really hard to grasp but that's an essential part of the treatment so once you have that clarity that it's okay to give full specificity full a uh, concrete expression to that anger not just the feeling that that you connect with but the thoughts and the images that go with it. That's where EMDR is so efficient. Mm -hmm. It is so useful in therapy because uh, they are allowed, the patient now is, is completely supported in connecting, in expressing, uh, and the visual, expressing the anger and the visuals that come with it. it it's very cathartic. Yeah. And then, and then when the protocol is successful, they actually don't feel any more distress over that particular incident or issue. Right. And it's cleared. Yes, that's right. And that's where memory reconsolidation does its work. Uh, there's, a, there's another aspect to this that comes to mind is Bessel van der Kolk has, uh, works with, with people who've been raped and, and sexually abused and traumatized in, in pretty dramatic ways. And one of the things that he, he found in his work was that helping people to, in sort of a dance format, to actually physically give expression to their anger, punching the air, moving your body in, in ways that are in sync with the feeling, was also very helpful. And sometimes when, when the body is inhibited, Sometimes that was a blockage to actually fully connecting with the anger. Right, because anger is so mobilizing, we don't have a, a, a safe context in, in which to act out that mobilization. Right. Uh, it's, it's, sometimes it's happened to me to have people say, well, I don't want to heal my anger. I don't want to get rid of it because that's what gives me energy. That's what gives me, takes me out of my passivity and allows me to be successful in the world in certain ways is because I'm, I'm out to, to get revenge and to, to conquer something. And I think there's some truth to that, though in general, uh, we hope that, that one of the results of therapy is to be liberated so that you can have some aggression in life and not have to be afraid of it and not have it connected with some old wound which hopefully can be healed. So back to your patient, um, if we could. It, it seems to me that she was in a very difficult situation because she 
essentially was rejecting the values of her religion, of her husband's religion, and was a double bind is a little bit extreme of an expression, but almost in a double bind in that if she was true to herself, if she were to discover her true values and, and uh, develop the authority to be her authentic self, then it would compromise her marriage, her station and community. Um, well, well that's, that's where in this particular case, I'm grateful that she had a good marriage and a, and a good family. Her mother was really accepting of her not being fully, um, fully in sync with the religion and her husband was too. And one of the things, so they talked it out at great length and, and decided that it was okay for him to go to his, his religious thing, but she didn't have to, to tag along. She didn't have to spend the day doing that. She could do other things and, and they made compromises. So they really worked that through in a, in a very healthy way. Uh, so this is really fortunate because there are plenty of other marriages where that kind of resolution might not have been possible. And the husband might have wanted to impose his values on her, but not in this case. And the same thing with her mother. So, so in the end, the therapy led to some readjustments and she hadn't understood how accepting her mother would be of her deviance and her husband turned out to be fully accepting too. So it was very gratifying to see that the therapy had a reverberation on the family and resulted in a healthier family life. As, as a woman, I'm curious to know if uh, she was able to achieve a redistribution of the division of labor because it seems that here she was kind of supporting the entire family without being able to really actualize her potential while he was off actualizing his potential. I'm just curious about the outcome. Yes, and, and it's a good illustration of the value of hope. Mm -hmm. Because hope, what hope gives you is the possibility of solving problems in the future. And so the plan was he would finish his graduate degree and, and go into a professional degree and go into practice. And then he would be taking care of the income and she would be able to do her graduate work and get her PhD that she wanted. Uh, so yes, there was a, a, a readjustment, but it was one that involved time. And, and that's one of, the, one of the solutions. That just illustrates this huge watershed difference between the problem solving of four-year-olds who don't have that possibility of imagining solving problems in the future and five-year-olds who can imagine solving problems forever after, and, and they have a picture in their mind of the arc of time. And, and so for them, the hope of someday I'm going to is incredibly liberating and allows them to solve problems in, in the future. So she was in a hopeful situation. There, there, there right. was a possibility. Yeah. I would imagine that the duration of therapy would vary uh, according to the rigidity of our patient's circumstances. Her husband was flexible, mm -hmm. but in situations where a patient is really confronted with having to make a very, very difficult choice, um, the reluctance to confront the anger, um, to be angry at an essential caregiver, 
I imagine would create that kind of situation that might feel like resistance to the therapist in the therapy room where we are discussing the same subject mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. it's, it's true that there really are situations that are, that are pretty hopeless. Um, and let's say the marriage was one that was really intractable and yet it's good enough that throwing away years and years of marriage and subjecting children to the, all of that disruption and, and so on has, has its own consequences. And, and maybe a person would make a wise choice not to deal with those. And that leaves them in an emotionally very painful and difficult situation. That's where acceptance may be the only solution. And acceptance is something that can be worked out in therapy acceptance that I'm just I'm making a decision to live with a compromised situation. It's just not going to be ideal. And I'm, I prefer to live with that than to accept the consequences of, of blowing everything up. That can mm -hmm. be. And having a therapist as a witness of that compromise and somebody with whom you can express that kind of sadness and, and resignation in a way Maybe the best we can do. It seems kind of paltry, but that's right. And you know, I think we are idealists at heart, but the truth is we we have situations that that can't be solved, and we see the dynamics of that in situations where there's no question uh, with somebody who's had a severe physical harm. Um, I've worked with with somebody who lost two legs and once you've lost your legs, you can't get them back. And so that's a situation where idealistically wishing that you could have your legs back doesn't do you any good. And so acceptance is really the only way to go. And that person had a great deal of acceptance and also got prostheses and a special automobile that was, you know, with hand controls and everything and went back to work and has a, a full and lively life having made a really complete acceptance of it. So I think that as much as we hold to our idealism, there are also situations where acceptance can be quite effective. And essential, because really it's just making the most of insoluble circumstances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to skip ahead just a little bit because one of the places where anger comes up is in, is in cases of, of early life abuse. And that's a place where often people, when they're feeling their anger, want to confront the abuser. And I usually advise them not to do that until the acute anger has really had a chance to heal and is no longer uh, so powerful. The desire to hurt is, is not there anymore because that's what makes it healthier, I think, to then confront the person. And because Perpetrators of that kind of abuse uh, usually are not going to be able to face their own guilt and shame at what they did. And so most of the time they're going to once again blame the victim, once again make excuses or, or, or deny what they did. And that can be very painful. If you had any hope left of resolution by the other person asking for forgiveness, that's very likely not to happen. And so it's better to be past uh, really counting on that kind of resolution to a bad thing that happened in the past. 
Right, because our patients can be re-traumatized. In EMDR training, we learn to discourage confronting a perpetrator until the patient is indifferent to the perpetrator's response or reaction. That's, that's right, yes. That's a sad thing, but I've seen it happen. And, and uh, the, the case that comes to mind is one where the, I think there was a little bit of both. There was a little bit of hope that maybe on his deathbed, he was going to admit and, and ask forgiveness, and he didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very difficult. Mm-hmm. So in Chapter 20, you discuss uh, anxiety-related problems, and I'm really looking forward to, to our discussion about it. Uh, I think, though, that for today, this concludes the podcast um, about part two of chapter 19, um, dealing with grief and depression. And we want to thank you for listening to the end. Uh, We hope it's been helpful to you. And we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything today? So I do want again to ask our listeners for your comments. Uh, we would love to hear from you. And you know, the most common presentation nowadays for psychotherapy, I think, is anxiety. So we're going to go for anxiety next time, and we'll see you then. All right. We will attack it with alacrity. Okay. Okay. Bye for now. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.